throughout our lives, particularly when working on the front line with people who are hurting, we encounter little traumas that accumulate over time. Whether it's feeling humiliated or belittled by a bully or going through a difficult breakup, these little T traumas can impact our mental and emotional well-being in ways we can't always spot. And that build-up of trauma can even impact our empathy and compassion as they push us from calm into a fight-or-flight response. My guest this week is Dr. Claire Plumley, a clinical psychologist who specialises in trauma. She calls that response the red zone, and if you've ever been there, you'll know how debilitating it can be. But Claire has some practical steps you can take right now to help move out of the red zone and back into green, as well as resources to help us beat burnout. This isn't just about getting through the day or ignoring those moments when you feel triggered. If you're feeling overwhelmed, you can speak to someone like Claire. But if you just need some practical evidence-based tips to recharge your battery when it goes into the red, then keep listening. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high stress, high stakes jobs. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. I'm Claire and I'm a clinical psychologist. I specialise in trauma, anxiety and burnout. I'm based in Taunton in Somerset. That's where I do a day a week practice. But I do also run an online um, therapy practice and I have associates who are all um, trauma trained as well. Have you always been a trauma therapist or did you start off in a different way and you were sort of drawn to that in your practice? I mean all psychologists are working with trauma really <laughs> because usually any kind of presentation has come from um, a, an elevated nervous system and bad things happening to people but yeah no I started in an IAP service improving access to psychological therapies so more general um, kind of primary care and um, I did that for about seven years and then I went into um, a sexual assault referral centre the Havens in London and started specialising in sexual trauma did that for a few years and so what brought you to be interested in trauma as it related to burnout so when I went onto social media about a year and a half ago, I was learning the skill of trying to make sure I was meeting people where they were at. So if they're not coming and asking for one-to-one -one therapy, they're earlier in their journey. And looking at how people were talking about their difficulties at the earlier parts, they're using more language like 
burnout, exhaustion, overwhelm, overthinking. Um, it's us as psychologists who then maybe put other labels on that down the line or when someone has reached a clinical either level of burnout or um, clinical diagnostic criteria for other things. Yeah, so I was kind of meeting people where, where they were at. And obviously burnout can range from the kind of mild up to the kind of crash and burn end. And a lot of people on social media, like myself, psychologists, are trying to help people understand the importance of catching it as early as possible because it's having that grinding down effect on you. And you've just got more cognitive faculties to try and get on top of it if you catch it earlier. A lot of our listeners, doctors, other healthcare professionals, people in other high stress jobs, you know, often are witnessing an awful lot of stuff, even if the trauma is not directly happening to them. It's happening to their clients, to their patients. They may see some really, really awful stuff. And I think we've sort of really, really separated them. We've said, well, you can get burnout due to the demands of the job, or there might be certain things that traumatize you. And actually, it's exactly what you're saying, Claire. I'm noticing that a lot of people and particularly people that I'm coaching one-to-one or uh, maybe talking to at events where I'm speaking or training, there isn't one big thing that's happened. Or maybe there's one thing that's tipped them over the edge, but they're looking at it and going, well, hang on, what, why, did, why did that tip me over the edge? But then you sort of look at everything they've coped with over the last 20 years. And yes, it is a combination of, of workload, of maybe a pretty stressful, toxic work environment. But often there are these little traumas that we often don't even notice anymore because they're just part of the day job but they must be having an effect right absolutely and we'll see that in therapy when people come for an apparently unrelated issue and they're puzzled why why can't I deal with this and it's in the context of chronic ongoing stress and and, you know our stress response was only developed to deal with a a short-term stressor so if we override the signs of stress which a lot of people in burnout are shown to tend to do. They kind of think it's just normal to live in stress. So they can get good at ignoring and normalizing stress. Then this is the the kind of the impact it has later on. It'll be a seemingly small thing that just tips the balance. And that's the point at which, oh. but yeah, your, your point around, you, you refer to it as little traumas is, is exactly how we explain it to, to, to our therapy clients. For a lot of people, trauma is often synonymous with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, but that's not how a lot of therapists see it. So to get a diagnosis of PTSD, the definition of trauma is that it's extremely life-threatening and a horrific event that leads to it. And we would call that a big T trauma. So everybody looking at that would agree it's traumatic. So, you know, like an assault or a, um, a natural disaster or something like this. But for a lot of people, they've experienced little t traumas. And these are the types of traumas that were personally painful or humiliating or disempowering, lack of control. All of these types of things um, are in there. To anybody else looking at that event, it might have been water of ducks, but they don't even notice or, or, or remember it. But for you, it stayed with you. And so your nervous system has had to react to that in the moment, particularly if there's a, an accumulation of these little t events. And if the themes of the little t events, little t traumas were very similar, like lots of moments of humiliation or, or feeling like your boundaries were walked all over, then this kind of accumulative effect really does cause a big impact on your nervous system. And that's that's what the, the definitions of, of trauma by people like um, Gabor Mate are. It's, it's that your nervous system, your body has had to make adaptations uh, to, to cope with what's happened. And those adaptations are 
um, emotional, behavioural, physiological. I once had it described to me or shown to me in a training, they got a squeezy ball and squeezed it and said, you know, if you squeeze this ball and it bounces back, that's what should happen to your nervous system. It kind of reacts and deals with the current stressor and then it bounces back. But in trauma, in trauma reactions, what's happened is your nervous system has been squeezed and then it's kind of stays squeezed and it doesn't bounce back. So how you're dealing with kind of future events and the stressors is adaptive according to what's happened to you in the past. I love that analogy of the ball. That, that makes so much sense to me because, yeah, people sort of say, what's, what's wrong with me? Why am I reacting so badly to this? And you're like, well, look at what you've, look at what you've been putting up with. And it's like the, the ball's been squeezed and squeezed until that the, I guess it's like the elasticity breaking, isn't it? And you can't, you can't then bounce back. Although you can, just to say you can, so we're not giving people no hope. Obviously we, we have neuroplasticity and, and options of help. So we don't want people to switch off at this point <laughs> think, oh, that's me. We're going to let you know how to do it. So don't worry. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned for the answers. But I do just want to address the, I guess, is it the elephant in the room? But a lot, what a lot of people are thinking, okay, everybody has traumas, right? Growing up, you get traumas. You fall over in the playground. People are horrible to you at school. If you've been through med school, everyone gets trauma. You all have experienced, a lot of you, teaching by humiliation, nightmare on call. You've all had patients being really rude to you, staff being really rude to you. You've all felt lack of control. And, you know, everyone has it. Therefore, it's pretty normal. So then why are we saying it's pathological or is it true that just everybody has experienced these little t traumas and we all need help it's interesting when i post about trauma sometimes people get angry that, that exactly that like what's the big deal this is normal <laughs> so i think we've normalized exactly that um overworking and um accepting that stress is is the norm and um but it doesn't make it okay <laughs> so people won't reach out because they kind of it impairs your ability to be self-compassionate. That that's the problem, and to recognise that actually I can do something to make myself feel better. And I guess it gives organisations a get-out-jail-free card to keep doing what they do, doesn't it? Like systems don't need to change if we're saying this is normal and just accepting the status quo. So well, I, th I think I think you're saying that we're not letting people off the hook just because lots and lots of people have it. But if everybody has it, then then what hope do we have? Because with the best one in the world, there aren't enough therapists around to, to deal with all of us. But is it a question of just recognising everyone does have it to some extent, then minimising it and doing what you can to, to treat yourself? What are the benefits of recognising it, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I guess thinking of it rather than as something like that you have and needs to be treated from a medical model perspective, just thinking of general self-care as being needed in life and that that is it's really easy to drift off from that and that perpetuates any difficulties we've got and makes it hard to give ourselves space but we, we just we're so busy we don't give ourselves space and we've been taught or socialized to thinking that that's a problem and sign of difficulties but what if we kind of change that idea into being like yes so we have all experienced it these moments and it's part of being human to have our nervous systems activated but what we know really helps us is connection understanding the context so kind of being kind of really kind to to one another and, and providing space to understand that these things have happened for this reason this reason because often we go inside and the emotions make us withdraw shame anxiety what will people think I'm, be I'm being a burden and then it becomes something we should be dealing with on our own over here so it's about community and connection I think I guess it's a little bit like 
housekeeping really isn't it so there, there's a model in general practice um, by Roger Nabel this is how I learned to consult where there's a five parts of your consultation and there's can't remember what all of them are but you've got the physical examination you've then got safety netting make sure it make, making sure that the patient's going to come back if things get worse that you've got a way of following up but then the final one is is housekeeping and that is how are you after the consultation getting yourself ready for the next patient and I that's the only place I've really heard that happening and I, I could be wrong and I'm, I know that many emergency departments for example have you know in-house psychologists now and then really really looking particularly at people that work in the specialities that have quite traumatic stuff happening quite a lot of the time but there is that housekeeping that we forget to do as you said like taking the breaks like just connecting with colleagues over coffee that I guess if your nervous system has been squeezed well, then just allow it to go back that then makes it more resilient and squeezable and boingy backy running out of adjectives here for next time. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's I think we can keep running with this ball metaphor because it does work really well. Like if you're you're doing your morning clinic and your ball's being squeezed, 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 making sure you don't then work through lunchtime where it's not got any capacity to go um, relax and, and back to at least some sort of resemblance to what it started off at the beginning of the day. But I think these burnout patterns where we're not creating space, they start really young. I've just read a really good book, actually. I don't know if you heard of it. Can't Even, Helen Peterson. So she links it all the way back to, you know, early patterns in your childhood, which I'm sure a lot of people listening will resonate with, where we're being told to be, you know, to work hard because medical school is competitive. How are you going to get in if you don't work hard? And, you know, my daughter is in year seven. And when she started school, she signed up to all of the um, clubs, which meant at lunchtime, she goes straight from her morning lessons into a club. And then she doesn't even have time during a club to eat her lunch. And then she's going into her afternoon lessons. And that's exactly the burnout patterns that we're teaching our, our kids. And, I, and she came home so proud of herself for signing up. I was like, oh, this is the message I've sent. And she's internalized. I'm like, how, how can we just claw some of your free time to just be silly with your friends at lunchtime because that's important too so yeah we repeat these patterns that we start early on in life where we're just not giving ourselves any space particularly in healthcare and, and other really high stress jobs the constant work the no lunch break the no breaks the, the work your ass off until finally you collapse and you've got to get home because of childcare or something or that literally the cleaners are trying to lock up that's just normal now it used to be the exception but it is just normal now and, and to the point where we're even feeling guilty if we're not doing it like that and so I would say the burnout pattern is the norm the healthy regular pattern that should be the norm is the exception and it feels self-indulgent I agree <laughs> but what do we do about it Claire because uh, you know we we oh gosh you know when and a lot of my work at the moment is around helping people say no so working out what we're going to prioritize, helping people say no. And often it's you've got to prioritize so you can get to those important things that you really, really want to do. It's very difficult to prioritize the, the downtime and the rest and the housekeeping stuff when what you're saying no to, you're feeling guilty about, when what we're saying no to, we're feeling shame about because we, if we say no to something and it means someone else is inconvenienced or it 
it messes with the idea that we are perfect, that we always help, we go out of our way to help other people. It becomes really, really difficult. It's one thing saying no to do because I'm doing something else that's very worthy and important, but saying no in order to avoid burnout, yeah, really tricky. But I mean, if you think it's interesting, some of this training I did recently on um, on trauma talks about the different functional levels of IQ we have when we're in different parts of our nervous system. So when we're in our green rest and digest, hopefully business as usual, so that's our parasympathetic ventral vagal uh, system, our IQ is functioning as it usually would. And then we, you know, when we get a bit kind of stressed, we're rushing around, it's kind of dropping down a little bit. And then this is our, our fight or flight sympathetic nervous system in the, in, in the go. Um, and then when we crash and start to kind of tip into feeling just completely overwhelmed, starting to shut down on autopilot, then that's our lowest functioning level of IQ. And that's where we feel a bit cloudy, like struggling to find our words or, or remembering things, our concentrations all over the place. And I think that's why medical burnout probably gets talked about often. You see it in the news sometimes, don't you? Because of course, I suppose that's the danger then what a lot of doctors maybe worry about as well, is that that's going to cause a, a big problem for for one of their clients patients but I think it's it's helpful to remember that actually you're not functioning at the level you are when you're coming in fresh to your shift oh totally yeah I mean my patients gosh my patients at five thirty, six o'clock in the evening got a very 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 different experience to me fresh at, at 8 30 and we don't think about that because we have just been told that the holy grail is to be able to keep carrying on rather than actually rather than actually resting and then what we do is we we do ignore those traumas that happen during the day those traumatic things and we keep going with patients even if we've just had one that was very very hard and very very traumatic and it feels that there is no time then if you're in the middle of a a, a surgery clinic etc cetera, etc cetera, to then actually do that little bit of housekeeping People who are listening back to this won't have seen, but on the front of your book, Claire, there's that battery on red. Um, and I was talking with Dr. Dyke Drummond um, the other day, who does lots of burnout stuff in the US. There's a podcast come out with him quite recently. And he said he often asked doctors, you know, where are you now? Where's your, where's your battery level? Where's your battery level on a one scale of one to 10? And if you're saying, well, probably three or four, is that good enough? Is that what you want? Is that really what you want? And then another uh, person who I do in a community with, um, John Parkin, who's written the Effort books, he sent out this brilliant blog the other day about battery levels and the fact that when we recharge, if we find our batteries really low, you know, 2%, so we think, oh, I've got to recharge. So we plug in and we recharge to 15% and we go, right, there we are. I'm off I go, off I go and recharge. I mean, is this consistent with the sort of people that you, you see in your clinic? Yeah. I mean, I have people coming in and they, they don't link the dots between how much they're working because you can't think clearly. You can't problem solve your way out of it because those cognitive functions are housed in the part of the brain you don't have good access to at a point like that. We have good access to that when we own our parasympathetic ventral vagal nervous system, the, the green part. And that how that impacts us is we struggle to imagine a po more positive future and strategies for getting out of it. And so that ability to step back and take the bigger picture in is, is impaired as well. So, yeah, you can charge your batteries up for 15 percent and forget that there's all that other percentage that's still empty. And, and an imagination for what that would look like is really, I think, missing. Absolutely. And I know I'm such a 
better person. I'm so much more creative when my batteries are 80% as opposed to, you know, 20%. Oh, what would it take? You know what? I, I don't know what it would take to get battery to 100%. Is your battery at 100%? Um, I don't know. I'm curious. Uh, like last week I was off and I definitely, you know, felt recharged. Um, I feel like I need to rewind to go back and see what percentage I got, I got up to. That is a good question to ponder. I would like to ask all our listeners, what would it look like to get your battery up to a hundred percent? What would it feel like? Can you imagine? It's interesting because like researching for this, this burnout book, I've read a few people's, you know, books on, on, but I've got the burnout solution here and, and other burnout books. And often the authors talk about that moment of clarity they had that things couldn't go on. And either it's because they did completely crash and burn or it's when they went away and they were kind of, they'd had two weeks proper break and they're on their way on back or on the beach or something and they kind of go, I can't go on like this. And I think that's the difference. They're no longer in their amber or red nervous part, part of their nervous system. They're back in their green and their ability to see and imagine this is not what I wanted for myself. These are my values. Oh yeah, they're over there. I'm a million miles from them is much more possible when they have had all that proper switch off time. Yeah, time and space is so important, which is why I think going on retreat is so important. Getting away, getting into nature, all these things, just to get you away from the, the stuff that's going on all the time. I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. I'm really interested. Is burnout then caused just by repeated little traumas? Is that what burnout actually is? I mean, as a psychologist, I would say yes, it feels like that is. But the research talks about jobs that are either monotonous or feeling like your boundaries are completely being trampled all over. You know, when you're really passionate about something, you can exhaust yourself and maybe that's not a trauma. So there are aspects like that, you know, entrepreneurs, artists athletes people like that who really want to do well and really passionate about their stuff and find it hard to put down so they don't notice the exhaustion um but i suppose as a psychologist you'd be questioning why that kind of need to get to that certain level of standards that probably does float back somewhere in your early life to some expectations that were put on you or a need to prove yourself or fearing of rejection um but we don't want to like i say pathologize everything but everybody's got a formulation of psychology uh, dots that can be linked up and that's you know something in therapy can always try and just unpick that you don't need to be at a clinical level of diagnosis to to do that so you can absolutely do that at any point and just understand your motivations and values a little bit better and where these patterns are coming from yeah because i guess at any point somebody could stop they could say right i'm not gonna carry on practicing or you know doing that doing that sport or oh this is where work is going to stop for today i'm going to say no or this is where I call in sick, I can't go in, or this is where I say no to that extra shift or stuff. And it is the lack of ability to set those boundaries, isn't it? Or or people trample on them and then we can't enforce them. I'm really interested in boundaries because 
I think doctors, ha- doctors really don't have any boundaries. They really, they really don't. And a lot of that is from our past and our training as in, I remember when I was a junior doctor, we could just be called to do anything. People had to, they asked you to do something. Even if you can do it, you'd have to learn to do it and just do it. It almost got to the point where, you know, if, if the cleaners weren't there, then the junior doctors had to clean the ward. It was just at that point where we had to do everything and we've grown up with this thought of I ought to do everything I can do everything so I should do everything and of course looking after everybody else is the most important thing and there were I guess I guess relating that back to lots of little micro traumas about what happens if we didn't do it and people having a go at us or like you said humiliating us or only valuing us for what we did and oh it's just you know it's very difficult so we've got this mindset that I I cannot ever just say no that is enough. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because you know, psychologists don't particularly, boundaries comes up in different ways in the models that we, or certainly when I trained, uh, but not as a standalone thing that you just go in and do as a kind of specific intervention necessarily. So I've been coming more interested in it in recent years as well. And I think people don't really know what boundaries are really, or actually how they are communicating that they've reached their limits in ways that are non-direct <laughs> hints and hope as I heard yesterday and gosh I mean this happened to me literally the other day I had been in London doing some training I got I'd left the house at 6 a.m I got back at half 7 a.m I walked in and people were sitting around and I said what have you done tea no I went I walked straight to the fridge got out tea and started cooking in a very grumpy manner but I'm saying I'm really tired and I just like feeling really sorry for myself, but thinking, but then there was a voice going, I can't ask other people to do this because they've had long days. This is my job. They are stressed. They've got exactly, you know, it was just all those sort of things. Yeah, I was annoyed about it. And in the end, I was sort of going, you know, I've been up since six and blah, blah, blah. And I messed my son. She said, he looked at me and went, mum, would you like a beer? <laughs> so sweet it was just the right thing I was like I don't want a beer but actually I would love a glass of wine (laughs) but it was just funny it was like he obviously recognized it but it was so funny his boundaries were like well I'm not gonna cook yeah he didn't I'm in the middle of revising but I'll show you some empathy (laughs) but yeah it was that hint hint and hope and feel guilty and passive aggressive and all I could have done was gone in and gone would anyone be willing to cook instead of me because I'm really really tired and I'm sure probably someone would have said yes. Or we could have gone, no, but you know what? Let's get a takeaway. You know, there are different things, but we have, we are totally our own worst enemies when it comes to this, I think. I mean, what do you define as, as a boundary? Because we always talk about setting boundaries, but I, I think it's, it's a bit of a weird word, isn't it? What do you define as that? I think of it as imagining there's like a, a fence around your wall and this is your time and energy and space. And where does that wall go? Like, how far out is it? (laughs) Because if you're willing to give more of your time and energy versus like less. And so it's kind of recognising, yeah, how much you've got to give and that these are finite resources. Um, Sometimes I talk to my clients about how that, you know, I talk about this wall. People are like, there is no wall. (laughs) or I don't know where the wall should go. But the thing about your wall is that it's totally up to you. And I think that's the, the thing that we try and talk to people about is that, you're in charge of your wall and your boundaries. You know, no one can force you to put your boundary down, can they? That is your, that's your, cho- that's your, cho- they, they can request and they can bang against your boundary. I think it can feel like they are, but that's, that's where the skill learning comes in. Because what you get when you try and enforce a boundary is pushback. 
And it's really obvious if someone gets angry, it's almost easier to stand up for your boundaries when someone's angry because that's the role of anger is to make us kind of be like, oh, hang on, our boundaries here. But um, it's when it's questioning your judgment, for example, or checking, are you sure you can't just do that? Or will you be really good? You're the right person. This is that persuasion. Like there are or emotional blackmail. Like, I just won't cope without you. You're like the person for this job. And all of that is harder to kind of be firm against. But it is all the same thing. It's all designed to push emotional buttons so that you drop your boundaries. Yeah, I made a, a video on social media um, on this I had an attempt at stop motion using Lego men, but it was like a Lego man on a little island. And I cut out a piece of paper and put him on the island and I put the sharks around. And how I described it was every time you give in to a boundary or, or kind of give a bit of your time and space where this, this island gets smaller. And so in the end of this video, this little Lego man's on a tiny island. The thing is on that island without that time and space and energy, they're the things that fill you up and keep you resourced and safe from from burnout <laughs> because without that you don't have any resilience for you know that moment that will tip you over um be the straw that breaks the camel's back so when island's bigger um because we're giving ourselves some downtime or permission to say no so that we can spend time with our kids or doing the things we want to, to enjoy yeah we're, we're safe safer that is what happens to us that people take bites out of our island the brick the bricks go and we're closer closer to that shark infested sea and then we've got no buffer, no buffer at all, because then suddenly there's a complaint, a really nasty complaint, or or something goes wrong with a patient, you know, that, that it happens, or someone's really irritated with us, or, you know, or there's a health crisis yourself or something. And because you haven't got that buffer of an island, all the, blo all the blocks disappear and you're suddenly, you're suddenly in the sea, aren't you? And whereas if you've just got that, that emotional buffer, then you're going to cope and you give away, you give away your time and energy. It's like you said, yes, people can push back at you and they can be passive aggressive and they can try and persuade you and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's up to you. That is in, is in your control. But I think over the years we have been led to feel that it's just totally not in our control. I was talking to, uh, to someone in one of our communities last night and, uh, talk about emails. So emails is one thing that I think, is this sort of creeping burnout waiting to happen really with emails because we feel beholden to emails because other people send them and they land in our inbox. Therefore, we feel we haven't got any control at all and we feel beholden to answer them. But but we wouldn't feel if the phone was ringing all the time, we could, we could ignore it. We decide not to answer it. We send it, you know, but so why is it with emails? As soon as someone puts in a request with email, we ought to answer it. We've got to answer it. We have no boundaries because we think because it's in an email if someone said to me oh Rachel can you just do this and I'm like actually sorry I can't I'm too busy but if they put it on an email it's like well it's an email it's a task now and th this person was having real problems recognizing that how she dealt with her emails or even if she did any of those tasks was in her control as opposed to anybody else's control maybe just to link it back to a psychology theory like if you are verbally communicating that or can see someone you can give off those friendly vibes with your eye contact your tone of voice that this isn't a threat that i'm saying it's just a kind of like really sorry not today i can't do that or but in email you don't you lose all those cues so you know that social engagement system that maintains a sense of safety and and kind of niceness kind of isn't there um, that that's probably something to do with it. Yeah. And then you get more resentful, don't you? You feel out of control. And linking back, you told me that list of things that cause trauma with a little T 
are things where you lack control, right? I think I see that as chronic stress, but it would be always in the context, wouldn't it, of an overflowing email box means you have inescapable levels of work so and you feel like beholden to that level of work and you can't just say to a boss this is too much or like there's there's something there isn't it that feels really difficult for your nervous system to 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 manage you've got the overwhelm with work and the lack of boundaries which is definitely associated with burnout we know then we've got these sort of traumas with the little t that, that that come at us probably most of us throughout our careers which if we just did a bit of self maintenance after they had happened our squeegee ball would be able to sort of spring back, but we but we often don't. And then I think mixed in with that, we have the sort of big T traumas, which which hopefully most people don't ever experience a really massive thing, you know, like an assault or something where they may be prone to PTSD. But there there is other stuff that happens that I don't think we recognize and deal with quick enough I mean have you seen that with clients that they they are so used to dealing with little traumas that they don't recognize when a big one has come along that they need to actually do something different yeah we call it kind of minimizing in in therapy we might use a word like that but I think what can happen is if people have got learned behaviors for coping with difficult emotions they just immediately kick in so keeping really busy because who wants to sit with the distress of of a trauma I mean, that's a classic and that <laughs> leads to further burnout. And often you'll how it might present in therapy, for example, is like somebody then has something else that happens. And it's like, all hang on a minute, I'm, I'm suddenly getting all these intrusive thoughts of this other thing that happened a few years ago. And it's all kind of crashing in at me at once. Or we can get, even if it's not explicit intrusions and, and flashbacks, we get implicit memories can come up so this is where we get these emotional kind of flashbacks where we get excessive levels of emotions that don't really warrant the level needed for the situation this is always a, a bit of a hint that there's something maybe in the in the past that might be worthwhile uh, going back and trying to deal with and that can be relevant to the boundaries as well that level of guilt and anxiety you know just a, a simple question you ask yourself is is this level of anxiety and guilt warranted for this and then what i mean what can we do about it we we talked about a bit of self care connection, giving yourself time, getting a proper rest for the li- the little tea stuff. What about the? I mean, is there like a middle, a middle sized tea stuff that needs dealing with a little bit differently? I mean, like like I said um, earlier, like cognitive strategies that are often recommended is trying to give yourself the space by using tools like journaling um, to try and just get it out of you and, and and try and order your thoughts a little bit. That kind of thing can be really helpful as a self help strategy and, and you know reading, reading reading books that are written by psychologists who have these strategies and actually doing the tasks in them rather than just reading the book those are really good starting points but if you've got to the point where you can't get into doing those types of cognitive strategies what's important is not to start blaming yourself and putting yourself down and kind of adding these things to your to-do list and going well I failed at that and I can't I can't do it I always say to my clients it's not a sign that you failed it's just a sign of where your nervous system is at at the moment and your nervous system needs something different to that right now. It needs something much more basic back to kind of connection and regulation. And so it depends if you're more in that kind of rushy fight flight part of your uh, sympathetic nervous system or if you've dipped more into your red dorsal nervous system. But if you're in your rushy, then it's remembering that you've probably got a lot of adrenaline, oxygen and too, too much of the kind of stress hormones that need to just be discharged because we we get an urge to kind of pace and, and do things like this. So doing something that releases that can be really helpful. 
Um, there's another burnout book by the Nagoski sisters called Solving a Stress Cycle. And they talk about like kitchen discos and going for a jog and having a laugh with friends. These are all really good for kind of discharging. And I, I teach my clients, all therapists teach their clients breathing exercises because it's like the quickest way that to bring the part of your nervous system that you need to under your conscious control to, to slow your heart rate down. So soothing breathing rhythms. And the other technique I, I, I always really like is, is some slow kind of bilateral tapping, which I use in my EMDR. And the research shows that slow bilateral tapping um, or, or eye movements dampens down the amygdala and sets off the reward circuitry. So you move from being in that kind of fight or frozen state, um, wanting to retreat and, and withdraw um, and flee into that kind of calm, but able to approach state. So you're not overwhelmed anymore. Andrew Huberman's a good neuropsychiatrist who, who's got um, lots written on that and has got some good YouTube talks if anyone wants to just search for him. Can you just tell us what this, the bilateral slow tapping is? So put your hands out in front of you so your palms are facing you at about shoulder length, at shoulder height. Now cross them across your middle and so your thumbs are kind of then hooked and so it looks like a butterfly. And then place them on your chest so your kind of palms are now over your heart and your fingers are up by your collarbone. And then you just gently tap at a pace like this. Tap, 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 tap. And the bilateral is so you're tapping one hand at a time, not both hands. We do this slowly and we connect it to positive resources, which are positive imagery like a calm place or figures in our lives that have given us um, a sense of calm or, or peace or wisdom or nurturing. But even on its own, the research shows that just the tapping on its own will help your nervous system to settle. So this is a good alternative if someone listening to this doesn't get on with breathing. But I would always try starting with breathing because it is the quickest way. So a good experiment with this is just to find your heart rate and just notice how it speeds up when you breathe in and slows down on the way out. Just do a few breaths like that. If anyone's driving at home, please don't do this and make yourself unsafe. Don't do this. <laughs> yes. Or, or if you're operating. <laughs> <laughs> what you're noticing then is, is the, the vagal break, the ability to, to regulate your heart rate through the breath. And so the longer slow out breaths is when the heart rate's slowing down. But either way, if you can make sure the, the breath is even, so if you're counting, say, you want it to be even on the in and then even on the out. So if some people might have in for four, out for five, in for four, out for five. That's an even re regular breathing rhythm. And this will help your heart rate to know that the fuel coming at it is consistent and it's out of the danger zone, essentially. So everything starts to function more in the green kind of rest and digest mode. Um, and if you... Uh, take a look at the app store. You can get biofeedback tools as well, which sometimes if you're someone who just wants to see it's working, <laughs> you, it's very clever what you can get. Now, you put your thumb over the um, the camera and the flash and it picks up your heart rate. And you can just do that for three or four minutes. You can see it then starting to regulate and then you know it's kind of doing its job. It will be doing its job, but I think if you're struggling to sit and do it, uh, something like that can really help you stay motivated to, to actually do the slow breathing. Right, and we all like a bit of 
a bit of evidence to back all this up so we can actually see it, see it ourselves. I just also interested in, so I, I get the green zone, the parasympathetic zone, and you've got that, this, I'm presuming it's the Amazon, the fight or flight, which is your sympathetic lots of adrenaline. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the red zone? Yeah, so we are drawing on polyvagal theory here, which was developed by a chap called Stephen Porge, and he um, recognised from some work with babies, actually newborns, that actually the parasympathetic nervous system was a bit more complicated than we first thought. So we tend to think of the parasympathetic nervous system as being more where we are when we are calm and in our rest and digest um, mode, which is true, but there's actually two branches of that. And he's mapped it onto in terms of our, the evolution of our, our systems. Um, and the oldest part of that is this dorsal vagal nervous part of our nervous system, which is responsible for the basic functioning of, of kind of a lot of our autonomic nervous system that happens on autopilot. Um, and so actually then the sympathetic nervous system developed um, after that. And then the, um, the green rest and digest part is the ventral vagus nervous system, the social um, engagement system that I referred to earlier, which is, is also part of that. Um, and that's, that came much later, it's the youngest part of our, our nervous system. So we're using that bit of the red of the nervous system when we're in the red zone. Is that just because nothing else is working because we've literally burnt out our hypothalamic pituitary axis? Or so yeah. So all of these systems are useful to us in our ordinary functioning, but we also have a threat mode attached to them, and so our threat mode will activate initially to try and keep ourselves safe from danger, and that's the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight. But it, if we can't escape from the danger, so if our boundaries are constantly kind of ignored or we can't mobilise ourselves out of danger's way, then this is where we've got our get out of jail free card with the red zone, which will kind of go into the flop. And that's where, you know, in the animal kingdom, you see um, the, the prey kind of literally flopping down and everything seems to stop. The breathing, the, the, the rib cages will stop and it's kind of, means the predator loses interest and disappears off. And then when the animal comes out of this, you'll see it vigorously shaking and um, that closes that cycle because everything kind of re-engages then. And so what that looks like in humans, you know, sometimes people will just zone out. I get that in the therapy room where sometimes just, just clearly aren't able to, to take on board what I'm saying. They just look a little bit vacant and lost and um, like they can't, they're not listening anymore. But you know, we can have different levels of that as well. So you know, feeling detached, the compassion fatigue, you know, blunted emotions. This would also fit more here. So red zone is is burnout, isn't it? I mean, that, that it's the symptoms of burnout: the depersonalization, the lack of empathy, the exhaustion, the feeling of poor performance, the blunted emotion. I mean, that makes so much sense. It really does, and that's why. Yeah, you often get you get the stress, 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 and then you then you get into that red of not caring, but you're still sort of vaguely functioning. And oh, that makes a lot of sense. And the treatment for that red zone again, I guess, presume it's it's all the stuff that we've already talked about, and then some. Yeah, it's just it's going really gently and thawing back out of that. It's like I said, it's the connection. That's where touching like knowing where your body begins and ends remembering that like because when you're dissociated that that disconnection from your body and your surroundings just goes so it's kind of coming back to safety 
trying to be where they're accused of safety and then we get that from our surroundings and people so seeking those places of safety out so you know is there a place in your home that you can make feel safe from it? If you work from home, for example, it might be your home office or making sure your things linked to work aren't spread around the house. Um, these might be little practical things and making sure at work there's somewhere you can go that feels like this is like I'm safe from patients getting at me or the phone ringing or emails like maybe not taking your phone because phones don't feel safe when the emails are pinging up. <laughs> Definitely not. So Claire, we're nearly out of time. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you for your top three tips for people that feel like they might be sort of starting to go down that from greens or amber into red or maybe who who found that they've been experiencing lots of maybe traumas with a small t my final question is so can we summarize from all this that burnout could be caused by by stress and difficult workplace it can also be caused by multiple traumas with a little t and most times it's caused by a mixture of the, the two yes absolutely and and difficult work environments as well and organizational factors and and all of that and so i don't want people to go away thinking it's something about just me i think we are in a culture and systems that perpetuate it and you know value commercialism and capitalism and all these things <laughs> like yeah as gabo mate says we're not in an environment where anyone can thrive at the moment because we weren't built to, to live to live like this to connect like this to yeah all those all those different things so so if someone was was struggling a bit at the moment what, what would your three top tips be I mean I think one is that if you are just chaotic rushing you're getting constant urge just to rush that that is actually a sign that you are in the amber part of your nervous system and so actually continuing to rush is going to maintain that so that's the sign that you need to pause don't wait to for the the pause to be given to you or to um feel like it that's the wrong way around you're not going to feel like it when you're there you need to recognize that the rushing feeling and not being able to make any time is the sign <laughs> i mean yes yeah, so self-care things that i've talked about if you if you if you've been trying those just and they're not going anywhere just get some support with a therapist or like the kind of communities that you've got because I think accountability and connection on some level any level will help um so I've run a group recently and everybody just finds you know just hearing that they're not alone um makes such a big difference so you know humans weren't made to be independent we were made to be interdependent and you know whenever we're working in therapy or somewhere we're always trying to find out where, where are those opportunities to, to connect because we just know how good it is for nervous systems so don't try and do it on your own find a community or go and speak to a therapist yeah and, and i would say just going back to the boundaries just work on boundaries and know it's something that can change because um it's a skill and some of the skill in that will be around learning how to manage intense emotions but not give in to them because a lot of people come to me I don't know if they say same for you Rachel with boundaries wanting to now do something without feeling guilty or anxious but actually what we're always teaching is that actually those emotions will show up and we're going to take them along for the ride and they they might get less intense because you get practiced at it and recognizing you know where your little island is and begins and ends which helps um but don't wait to not feel guilty or anxious before putting in the boundary because again it doesn't come it doesn't that's not the way it works the emotions will start to change when you change your interactions with them 
such good advice because yeah I spent a lot of my life trying to say to people don't feel guilty or myself don't feel guilty but you that's just it's hired right into us because we're big good people aren't we but it's just actually guilt oh hello guilt hello guilt my old friend yeah that's why you're there you're protecting me and that doesn't mean I need to do anything different so really important you know for me I'm just listening to you that my top tips would be yeah give yourself permission for that self-care even if you're really really busy even if you can't afford the time that's probably the time when you need to because you're never ever gonna have got everything done and that I love that idea of the regular housekeeping after you know all the time where's my housekeeping to get that battery back up back up to 80 90 or even 100 percent and what you said about that the minimizing we do when we do have quite significant trauma that comes at us all, all the time actually actually recognizing it and thinking right this has actually been more significant than usual what am I going to do for a bit of self-care and, and, and compassion and where do I need to access help and connection? Wow. We've talked about so much, Claire. Thank you so much. We're going to have to get you back on the podcast, particularly as you keep going writing your book and you can come and share all your, uh, your revelations to us, your learnings. If people want to get hold of you, how can they, how can they find you? Uh, yeah. So I'm on a lot of the socials, Instagram. I do short form videos on TikTok, which a lot of people cringe at. I cringe at, but that's where we go when we zone out. We scroll on our phones. So that's why I went on there to meet people where they're at. Um, and I've got a new YouTube channel and my website is drclaireplumley.com and you can download there my my free uh, pathway out of trauma and burnout if you want the steps, the steps that I would be doing as a trauma trained therapist. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for being here and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.